0: Friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I want to thank you for tuning in to Conversations with Consequences. We love our listeners. We love to have you. We hope that these conversations have consequences for you, wonderful consequences that make you grow and make you happy and inspire you. Today, we have a great lineup as we try to do every week. We are very happy to have back on the show with us Brad Wilcox of the National Marriage Project to discuss protecting teens from big tech. But first... We turn to Jessica Hooten Wilson. She's a professor of humanities and classical education at the University of Dallas. She has two books coming out next year, and she's here to give us a sneak peek of both of them and also the benefit of her very intelligent mind and her expansive vision all about the classics and wonderful literature. Welcome to the show, Jessica. Thank you for having me on. So Jessica, I have this impression of your work as, as someone who has a way of explaining how, how literature, how the novel can deepen for us our understanding of, of the great truths, and especially of the great Christian truths. Is, is that a fair
1: assessment? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's, it's funny to hear someone describe your work. Like it's this thing outside of you. It's kind of like when people talk about the tradition, like it's a, a handful of books you wrap up in a package and just pass mm-hmm. to the next person. But for me, it's just an outgrowth of I've always loved stories since I was a kid and I've always been formed by them and shaped by them in my house. And so I've been sharing that passion in all the different forms that I can by writing about it, speaking about it, sharing it in a classroom. So it's really just about who I am as a person.
0: And Jessica, right before we got on the phone on this um, on this uh, interview, I was searching desperately through a Chester one of my Chesterton books. I think it's an Orthodoxy, where. Uh, Chesterton describes the novel as a Christian thing that it it happens because Christianity is romantic it, there's because romance exists in Christianity and then when that romance that Christian romance is written down what it results in is a novel now I'm not asking you to tell me where where that what page that is in orthodoxy I don't know of that <laughs> if you remember reading something like that but does that make sense to you well I don't know exactly where Chesterton would be talking about that but the the idea of the
1: stories that are found in Chesterton right
0: the, the idea of the the
1: ways that he came came to know Christianity was through story. Mm-hmm. And so even Orthodoxy he felt, he says this uh, this is a memoir that is your is not a normal memoir because it's essentially also an argument, but it's not a normal argument. And he, he interrelates those things in a way that imitates what scripture itself is doing. It's a giant story that's also revealing to you the truth that you could actually write into claims, but it's telling you knowledge about the world in a story form. And so all in Christianity is just this great massive story. Through which to see our reality, and so then every story that's responding to that is either true or false, or good or beautiful, based on that master story that's that's written into creation.
0: Oh, that's a lovely way to th- think about that. Why do you think that people, uh, men and women, do we are we able to to approach these great truths more easily through through novels? than we are maybe through um, through through metaphysical works, or what do you think?
1: Well, I love the way that uh, C.S. Lewis describes it in the discarded image, in which he, he says that the medieval thought of a person in three concentric circles. The outer circle of a person was the imagination. The next level in was the intellect, and the middle was the will. So you first began by how do you see things, and then your intellect can analyze how you see those things. But first it's just the senses. It's it's the way you approach the whole world by how you see and hear. I mean that's why all through scripture it is they have eyes that do not see, they have ears that do not hear. We have to have this imagination that is porous, that allows us to, to see and hear reality as it is and then we can analyze it and didactically talk about it I and mean, this is the role of literary critics right you, you have the great stories that people read and then you kind of walk people through what it is that they've read and that they can draw from so I think the imagination is the first access point it's the one that all of us know from the time children. it's the one that shapes who we are and how we have a vision of things
2: Jessica you've got two books coming out next year and we want to get to both of them but let's start with the scandal of holiness renewing your imagination in the company of literary saints I'm especially really interested in this because I come from a great books background um, but but St. John's College so it was secular and so I'm always I'm very interested in that sort of great books approach um, when it comes to you know more things that hint to the spiritual and Mm -hmm. Um, moral development as a Christian. And so this book really calls us to be the best versions of ourselves. And you pull from lots of different literature, but one of the books you um, pull from is Death Comes for, uh, for the Archbishop from Willa Cather. And can you tell us more about this especially? Sure. So I tried to consider
1: what are those virtues that don't fit easily into an American identity Mm-hmm. Um, as I've grown up with it and the, the conflation, I think so much between our Christian identity and the American identity. And so there's a lot of that we've inherited that we're really comfortable with about being kind to one another. So I tried to look at virtues that were not comfortable But they're still scriptural and they need to then override um, some of our sensibilities. So one of that being our lack of comfort with death, whereas the Christian tradition is rooted in like memento mori, like we're Mm -hmm. going to die. And I think it's important for us as we make decisions about what the good life is to always have that mortality in front of us. Right. But then, of course, also the immortality afterwards, like we are souls that will not die But we are creatures in this certain state right now that will and um, to always be reflecting on that so that we can be making these choices for how we're supposed to live. And I think, so Death Comes for the Archbishop, for example, um, you have this Death Comes, so it sounds like it's going to be this, like, mystery story, mm-hmm. and it sounds like it's going to be, like, really exciting, and yet he doesn't die till the very end of the story. It's really just it, about a good life. What is a good life? But she puts death in front of you from the moment you open the book. And so you're thinking about what the good life is always with that end of death registering in your, in your mind.
2: Yeah, I really like that, because it reminds me, actually, of one of my tutors, who is one of the Sort of old school guys at St. John's that came from um, the University of Chicago. He always just said, you know, the job of St. John's College is to make you better human beings. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so even in that secular sense, there was that classical idea of what these books were supposed to do for yes, you. Yes, and that's like exactly what you're doing but in this Christian context. I just I'm really I'm really excited about it personally. <laughs> I think our viewers will be too. Oh, um, thank you.
1: Yeah, it's so much of my heart just poured into it because I
2: I think this is the point of life and
1: um for me as a Christian, you know, what does it mean to be a human being you can't understand without the human one, right? Without the mm-hmm. God at the center of that conversation.
0: No, absolutely. My experience has been that in that in novels is when I when I touch most deeply and when I I, when I feel that I grasp deep spiritual truths that affect me and, and they keep affecting me and they, they stick with me and they, 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 and I mull over them because they come clothed in, in personalities and because they come clothed in drama and human interaction, or at least very real on the page. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned virtues that we have discarded, and is that the way your book is arranged about different virtues? Because you mentioned the virtue of uh, remembering that our life is finite, that death comes for all of us, and another right. virtue that I think of all the time that we do encounter in novels, but we don't uh, as a good thing, but we don't often encounter it in, in, in our modern world is the virtue of obedience. Is there one that is there one of one of your uh, topics that you cover the virtue of obedience?
1: Oh no, but I wish I would have talked to you before I wrote this. Oh. <laughs> I
0: think <'cause> that's <laughs> the fantastic. next book then.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. I'm gonna have I'm gonna have to get on that. You know, it was funny when I went through all the different virtues. Like there were so many that I thought, okay, also, I also would need to write about this. I would need to write about, um, you know, the Christian respect for age, both for children and, and the elderly, is something that we don't really talk about a whole lot that we need to. Have. So there are all these virtues that I kept thinking. These are things that are particular to Christianity. Um, the ones that the ones that I forefronted for me were ones that came from books that I've just been teaching for years and loving. And in a sense, I think that obedience underlies all of it. But it's an obedience of the created order, you know. Um, submit maybe submission is a better way of referring to it the way that I write about it is submitting to how you were made versus trying to make yourself realizing that there's an author of your story versus trying to write your own story and yeah. so in that sense I guess there is a submission to the authority that is the author of your life
0: wow that's very pregnant with meaning nowadays Jessica uh, submitting to the way you were made I can that sort of that rings like a, a huge loud bell in my head considering <laughs> what we're confro- confronting these days in, in human anthropology
1: yeah absolutely I mean people are very into autonomy Uh, you know, there's all these books. I mean, my first book was against this idea of the autonomous self, the authority of the autonomous self, and instead recognizing that our limitations could be good things. I mean, this is a lot of the Catholic writers of the 20th century wrote about limitation in a beautiful way instead of a negative way. And our current culture is all about conquering the limitations, exceeding the limitations, you know, living the impossible dream instead of recognizing limitations are a key to discernment. We've lost. If we don't see our limitations as guiding us toward a certain path, that's why we feel restless and directionless. We're not acknowledging those limitations as gates. And moving us towards the right doors.
0: And isn't that mm-hmm. sense of total autonomy, complete individuality? Don't you think that that is, that creates terrible anxiety in people? Like the oh, the, the kind, absolutely the kind we see in, in when you're confronted by a long menu at a restaurant, several <laughs> pages menu, <laughs> and you say, "What yes. in the world?" <laughs> yes, absolutely.
1: Yeah, you know, Walker Percy talks about this a lot in his own novels. His novels are the existential selves, just in complete crisis, where you you have no idea what road to take. You don't know that you're even you a pilgrim on a road. You're just lost in the wilderness because you don't recognize the road. And if I have a friend who wrote a book, uh, I love the title, You Are Not Your Own, Alan Noble, and that title just kind of sums up the case, right? Of course, it comes from scripture. But you're not your own, to someone else and once you admit that fact, suddenly the road, you know, each step may be a little bit more light on it, and it may be a little bit more clear the direction you're supposed to go.
2: Yeah, now, I mean, even to sometimes all this cancel culture going on, and to even say that there is is a road, or, you know, any sort of reference to teleology of a human being, um, it's really easy to become concerned consumed with false heroes and narratives. Mm-hmm. And, and we have these literary traditions. I know that you did a really great job sticking up for Flannery O'Connor when that was going down. But, I mean, you see this in your students. What what do these books and these literary traditions do that can bring, how do they bring Hearts and minds and souls and all that back to these more transcendental Mm -hmm. uh, ideas of what of human flourishing.
1: So one of the things that I used to teach for first year seminars for undergrads was a course that I said, you know, writing your own story. I I I labeled it the way that it really drew Gen Z and millennials into Mm -hmm. the (laughs) conversation. But but what we started with was Augustine Confessions. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So instead, it was learning what they eventually learned uncovered in the course of reading confessions and then surprised by joy lewis is that god is writing their lives they couldn't decide what century they were born in they didn't get to decide their gender they didn't get to decide who their parents were they didn't get to decide who their family members were they didn't get to decide what country they were born in like and suddenly they realized trying to write the story of their lives all the things that god made the decisions already for them Yeah, And I think that stepping into this tradition of people trying to look at their lives this way, like they get to see that all of history is a story that started way before them, that they're now participating in. And when their lives end, the story isn't over. There's Mm. another story that continues beyond them. And so getting to see the tradition as this living thing in which, yes, their story has a part to play, but it's not the grand finale. It's just part of this very long story that God's telling. And I think the tradition reminds you of that. You get to meet all of these people that have come before you, and there's just millions of them and there's so many stories that are told and then there are those that are untold that they to discover and I think that's a great part of this living tradition this understanding of it as being something dynamic that you're stepping into and engaging with.
0: If you're just tuning in you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN radio. I'm your hostess Dr. Gracie Christie and I'm here with my TCA colleague and co-host Lee Sneed and we have Professor Jessica Houghton-Wilson with us. She's from the University of Dallas and she's discussing two great books that she has written Written. the second one is called learning the good life wisdom from the great hearts and minds that came before you know talk listening to you talk Jessica about these students that you're teaching and and you direct them to where they are standing in relationship to their ancestral past who why they're standing in a certain place and time a result of certain uh, genetic and uh, familial acts that that result in them and you're able to direct them into into thinking of how how wildly adventurous that is to think of yourself Yourself yeah. As as a product of, of fabulous people that have come before and you're living this great story. Yeah. That seems to me very romantic and much more romantic than to think of yourself as starting from scratch every time. Like every human being starts from scratch, starts at zero. Is yeah. that how is that how your how your students were perceiving that?
1: Oh absolutely. I mean the way you're talking about it does sound like Chesterton, it echoes of Chesterton. You know, the excitement for the two-year-old Chesterton, right, is, you know that a door opens. But imagine a world in which there are no doors because you have to create them to make them and then when you make them you already know what's behind them the world is a is a lot less enlivening <laughs> there's a lot less excitement when there's no mystery when you're the only person involved in making the world and so I love Chesterton's idea of these opening these doors seeing what's around the corner it's it's life as a discovery it's uh, what Bernanos calls the adventure of sanctity right I mean it's this wonderful path in which you you try to follow those who came before you but they came before you <laughs> so it's mm-hmm. this mysterious uh, paradoxical reality where, where anything can happen and, and and yet, the more you step on the right stones, you get to a greater destination, you know, than when you fall on your way. And uh, so I think it's, I love thinking of reality. And that's it with with that mystery and that adventure.
0: Some people are afraid to pick up novels, some good Christians, some people, people who are Trying to be careful of what they read because it might it might lead them down bad paths or wrong ways of thought. And I'm I'm the first one to say that I'm not I'm not making fun of that because I'm very careful what I ingest, right? right. In, in literature and movies and all that. What would you say to people like that who want to who want to deepen themselves d- deepen their understanding in, of literature and, and drink from? you know, the founts of literature, but without uh, getting themselves sort of in the mire of things.
1: Amit Majmudar wrote this poem called Reading. It is beautiful. It's dedicated to Jorge Luis Borges. Oh, yeah. And the, reason, the reason I love it as a way of starting with this question is he, he talks about, I stand before books as I stand before the night sky. And the books are these infinities that are all demanding to be explored, but I don't have a map and I don't have a guide. And then a the blind librarian comes and he takes my hand and I suddenly feel secure knowing where to look and all the stars open into suns. And so it's just, we've lost the understanding of reading as a communal activity. And that's one of the reasons I think that it frightens people. Because you don't know what book to choose. You know, like you said a second ago with the limitless list of options. And so you're afraid to to choose a book. You're afraid to ask. Because isn't it supposed to be about preference? Isn't it supposed to be about taste and what you enjoy and what you prefer? But it's not. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, reading for thousands of years was about someone showing you what to read, telling you what to read, how to read, telling you how to read. Most of education was telling you how to read and how to engage with the text. And so we've lost this sense that reading should be about the masters, those who have loved the books, who know which books to read, helping the novices walk through that process so that eventually the novices then become the masters for others. I think we don't need to be afraid if we're considering reading that way. It should not be this isolated is this for my own pleasure? But if it's up for my own pleasure, are my pleasures going to leave me awry? And instead consider reading with guides and reading with others and reading in community and looking for that advice
2: for how to read well. And I love this idea of librarian, like Beatrice. It's like, so beautiful. Th- that poem, it's beautiful. It's funny. I have a soft spot for Borges because my dad was an English professor and one of his treasured possessions was a photograph of Borges, a uh, desk lecturing in his class.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so um,
2: cool. So, and he actually was sort of like my guide through books before I got to St. John's. He was always handing me things to read and things he thought were, you know, appropriate. And I remember things like The Awakening and yes. you know, just things like that when you're a teenage girl, it's just like, oh, this whole world out there. And of course, yes. you know, the Lost generation writers, of course, appeal to you. And so I, I felt ready and not ready for Saint John's. But because you start off with day anima, and I'm like, what did I do? This is English. <laughs> um <laughs> um so you don't, but you don't just include literature in, in your books. You, you do the whole canon. And okay. you bring it And What I really like, actually, for me, as I've become, well, great book speak, right? A more advanced student, even though I'm not technically a student anymore. And I'm allowed to read outside resources and read the letters of Flannery O'Connor and mm-hmm. realize and sort of read the more gossipy things about who was friends with whom and who proofread whose books. And what I find now is that I read one novel and then I re- it leads me mm-hmm. to other books because of the references. And it. I have to look that up and then I find that. And the book themselves, and obviously that works better when they're contemporaries of each other. Do you do like what's the uh, plant the layout of your book? Is it chronological or do you go by themes or how does it have does the the that
1: scandal of holiness? We are talking about um learning, learning the good life. Learning the good life. a second one. Sorry, I should. So- <laughs> My publishing life is so weird. I like, (laughs) like three or four year breaks, and then I put out three books at one time. Yeah. (laughs) Learning the Good Life is chronological. The theme that kind of ties the reflections or the introductions, the exordiums between each text together is what does it mean to learn as a Christian? So this goes back to the the idea of, you know, the tradition, the practices Mm -hmm. of piety by which to approach a text. Because if you approach text as a miner trying to pull whatever gems you think are worthwhile. Like like you could just be pulling a bunch of rocks and and dust out of uh, the text itself and not get what the text is trying to do. And so we, we talk about the virtues of reading and, you know, the ways of approaching text through the text themselves. So the exudean kind of shows you it guides you. It's it's that librarian that says, like, look here. And then you read the excerpt following it, and then there's discussion questions. And so we collected professors across the country from all different traditions, and even some of my friends who are teachers but who are not in the university system, and uh, asked them, like, what text... You know, if, if the world was ending, what is the small mm. excerpt that you want to make sure the next generation doesn't lose? And so and I wanted I wanted the book to be a lot more expansive than I think a lot of these readers have been in the past. We, we've had um, probably more of a canon that had this majority, um, you know, very male, white. Western mm. just at the heart of things because that was what we were used to and that was passed down to us but the more that I've been in graduate school and out of grad, grad school and getting to hear some of these voices I had never heard before yeah. and you know discovering Marjorie Kemp and discovering Julian of Norwich and discovering her and I mean, these are things I just never had access to and so we made sure that we were showing everyone that was at the table right, and um, trying to be as hospitable to this feast of discourse throughout the tradition as we could be so so the book moves all the way from, I think it's like Confucius to Tony Morrison essentially.
2: Oh, I love it. And I love the idea of the conversation notes because post-pandemic, it's exactly what everybody's wanting. And is it mm-hmm. something you could do? You could pick, you wouldn't have to do the whole book. You could just pick a chapter to read with your friends and yes, are they, are they self-contained? Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. And
1: that, that's one of the reasons we did it too. I, you know, I have the privilege right now of traveling to lots of classical schools and mostly who I talk to are not students. I'm talking to parents. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> the parents are thinking like, I know that I should choose this education and great books for my kids, but I have no idea what you're talking about. I've never read Homer, never read Shakespeare, and I, I cannot keep up with my child. And so this is also one of those books where you could, you could do a section of it at dinner together. Mm-hmm. And you could just enjoy reading parts of it aloud and asking questions and having dinner table conversation. I mean, we very intentionally put a big table on the front of the book and showed all these friends dining around it on our cover to say, like, to suggest that like, this is what intellectual life should look like. It should look like a table. It should look very relaxed and enjoyable. This is not an elitist thing that belongs in the academy. These are the texts that, that make us and that should be shaping our culture.
0: I like this, Jessica, because I think in the absence of literature, what takes the place for that kind of interaction and back and forth is politics, which is not we know which is can be very divisive and can cause a lot of anxiety because of you know if, if your guys are in in power right now or your 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 political whoever you think is correct. Um, I like the I like the idea of having a book like yours as as a point of departure for for wonderful conversation. Well,
1: and it's also about permanent things. You know, you don't have to feel like if you're talking about justice in Aristotle, that he's going to (laughs) change. So whereas if you talk about justice according to the current headline or the current political party, that has a temporary label on it, right? It's going to expire as a conversation pretty quick. So these kind of conversations will last. Forever, right? Your understanding of Aristotle's justice, you will return to over and over and over again. You can't finish it.
0: I read a right. I read a little quote from Confucius the other day by chance, and I sent it to my. I have two children now who are married, and it said something like, "It is the duty of children to give grandchildren to their parents." <laughs> And I thought, wow, what an incredibly intelligent man! <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, that's so great. I, yeah, I was listening to Sirach this morning. that was talking about if you want to be honored, honor to your father, your father and mother. And I thought, oh yeah, that's. I mean, that is the way that this works. Like it's just revealing. This is how the world is. Right? Mm-hmm. These things that tell us the truth.
0: And there's so much out there to to delve into. You're, I think that your students are very lucky, Jessica, to have you as a teacher. It sounds like you're somebody who who has a a very big mind and a very big heart.
1: Oh, oh, thank you. Yes. And I, you know, I, I love the connection between the two. To me, it should be, I worked at John Brown University for years and I loved their motto, um, heart, Head and hand, and oh, right? nice. all of those go together to to make us who we are.
2: I I really love that. And can, can you tell me? All I could think of was all the different families I want to give this book to as a Christmas present. But the publishing <laughs> the publishing date isn't until the spring. Is that right? Right, right. So um, of so holiness
1: is March, and then um, in May it is uh, learning the good
0: life. And going okay. back to your holiness book, Jessica, why you said in March what the holiness book? It's in March, okay. And who who is the focus of that book? Like, who do you who do you envision as a, as a great uh, reader for that book?
1: Well, you know, you were just talking about politics, and I think that's actually a good reference point, because our political culture really demands that we we use whatever means we can towards what we think is a good end, even though it's an impermanent end, right? And so we're willing to completely adjust our motivations and our actions for anything. So I'm hoping that my book is really for the church to remind us that, the political sphere is not the sphere that we ultimately belong to
2: mm-hmm.
1: and we might have to be as you know Russell Moore would say like we might have to be defensive within that sphere to protect religious liberty but that's only so we can reinvest in the church and go back to what it looks like as a community to strive after holiness so my book is, is very much for the church I'm hoping that people are going to read it in Bible studies and start bringing literature into their Sunday school classes and that this is the kind of book that will replace you know talking about about the poplet, you know, at your local book club. Instead, maybe I, can, maybe I can, in part, be a blind librarian and say, here are some of the books that I would recommend you read.
0: Well, it sounds like you would be the perfect guy, Jessica. And I, I thank <laughs> you. I thank you very much for, for sharing your time with us. And and we hope that, that your books will achieve great success and lead a lot of uh, hearts and minds to the truth and ultimately to God. So thank you for being with us today, Jessica. Thank you. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we are very happy to have back on the show with us Brad Wilcox of the National Marriage Project to discuss Protecting Teens from Big Tech. Welcome back to the show, Brad.
3: It's good to be here, Gracie.
0: You wrote a great piece um, that I've enjoyed. I actually even, and I wrote about it actually for publication uh, called Protecting Teens from Big Tech. And suggesting that the the landscape out there for teens and big tech is very, is very bad and that parents uh, need to be more vigilant and, and be stronger about protecting their children, but that there's also a role for the states to help parents protect their children. So you say, uh, tell us about that. Tell us about what role you envision for the states and what are the particular dangers that you see um, the children being exposed to?
3: Yeah, well, as you know, I think, as any parent knows with teenagers today, there's been a dramatic increase in depression, in self-harm, in suicide attempts, and suicide in the U.S. since uh, smartphones kind of came online in, you know, around 2010 in in large numbers for our kids. Um, We see, for instance, that teens who are heavy users of social media sleep about an hour less a night, um, and that sleep deprivation is a big factor when it comes to depression for our kids, so, you know, we're thinking at these Superfamily Studies and, you know, in other places about ways that we can kind of pass legislation that would um, basically reduce the power of big tech in our teens' lives. And so we had a new report that came out um, called Protecting Teens from Big Tech um, just recently. And there are a number of ideas in that new report. One would be to have mandatory age verification laws um, that would require uh, social media companies to determine that their uh, users are in fact adults and if they're not adults, to get uh, parents or guardians' permission to use you know, their sites—that's sort of one idea.
0: Let's let's talk about um, that for a moment sure. because a lot of these, a lot of websites ask, "Are you over 18? Are you over 16?" And then you check yes. <laughs> so how could this? What would change? How would you make something like that mandatory? How would it be something that the tech companies could be accountable for?
3: Yeah, there are. There's kind of new technology here on this score. We've got um, new. Uh, sites online that are kind of establishing basically age verification and identity identity verification so that you can kind of do, for instance, large-scale financial transactions online. And of course, those kinds of transactions require real identities uh, mm-hmm. for folks. So there's technology that's there. We haven't applied it to these social media companies that would you know, basically allow folks to use a credit card or a bank account um, or a driver's license to verify that they are, in fact, an adult. And having done so, um, and you kind of you could you know you could kind of do this with a sort of third party, and it would allow you to kind of go across you know the internet, and you know if you want to do Instagram, fine. If you want to do Twitter, fine, no problem. Facebook, whatever, um, it would you know would be really no hassle for adults once they've kind of gone through this you know basic um, identity verification. But it would it would basically make it much more difficult for kids to get on to social media platforms um, when they're not adults, because they wouldn't be able to come up with these kinds of um, you know pieces of identity.
0: And what age um, what age do you think would be appropriate if something like this actually happened and when and, and was able to be passed?
3: Yeah, so we're thinking under 18 is sort of our thought. I mean, um, we think that, you know, a lot of these technologies are are posing emotional threats to our Teenagers, and there's no way we can't, you know, uh, as long as they're minors, have uh, parents, you know, in on the decision to be, you know, active on something like TikTok, for instance, um, or, you know, any other Insta would be, you know, another example. Clear evidence of a lot of bad stuff happening on these sites, and your parents are often oblivious to what's um, going on and whether or not their kids are engaged on these uh, social media platforms.
0: When I first started seeing young people use TikTok, preteens, I it was sold to me well my daughter tried to sell it to me as a as a as a place where girls do funny little dances and they and it's a lot of fun and it's very innocent but recently the wall street journal did a long uh investigative uh series of pieces into tiktok and on the dangers of tiktok do you think that that's one of the more dangerous uh, platforms and and what kind of dangers lurk on tiktok
3: well, you know, from what I've seen, you know, things like both Instagram and TikTok are problematic, um, for, particularly for young women. I think they're very often sexualized, um, sort of images that kind of, you know, can make, um, the average teenage girl feel like she is, you know, doesn't measure up in some kind of way, you know, physically or, or, or beauty wise. Um, they're often kind of, you know, strange, you know, uh, sort of patterns being articulated on TikTok, everything from, I mean, seen news stories about kids kind of like developing an illness identity based upon TikTok videos that they've been watching. Um, There's just kind of a lot of, you know, just sort of a lot of strange stuff that's sort of filtering through on these um, social media platforms as well that kind of encourages teenagers to engage in strange behaviors or to, you know, uh, take up rather uh, weird identities as well. So, um, you know, just the bottom line, you know, is that we think that parents should have the ability to kind of be engaged and involved in sort of what's going on electronically with their kids and um you know obviously parents can do that directly to some extent but it's also in the current environment easy for kids to sort of you know sneak by their parents Mm -hmm. online and so these laws would give parents um a much easier way to kind of um keep track of what their kids are up to on most
0: kids are much more adept at tech savvy than their parents yes much more
3: so we're trying to even the the playing field here a little bit and even you know for parents you know who are trying to keep their kids off of smartphones i mean the problem is even things like you know sort of scheduling you know, uh, soccer practice or, or knowing where your soccer game now is all kind of mediated through these online platforms. So mm-hmm. it can be really hard for kids to kind of navigate ordinary uh, life as a teenager without smartphones. So that's that's also, I think, one of the challenges facing contemporary parents.
0: One so thing we've got a couple of, I'm sorry. One thing I noticed uh, during COVID, and it happened in my house with one of my children, and, and I've talked to lots of moms and dads where it happened to their children, and Is um, withdrawal from regular life, uh, regular friendships and having a very um, spending too much time online and not not necessarily doing anything bad, but just uh, the opportunity cost of not having a life um, where you're actually having human contact. And some of the ideas you have um, that you're going to tell us about now, I think also keep children not just safe from predators and and these new diseases that tiktok invents for instance but also from just not living a normal outside life with with real people
3: yeah that's correct and so one obviously uh one obvious issue here is that you know even if kids are kind of engaged in relatively innocent stuff online there's often you know kids are often up late at night you know um you know they may Put their phone away per parent instruction, but then they sneak back and get it or whatever mm-hmm. else. But so, what we have suggested here is would just be kind of again for for minors would be um, you know the platforms would just would just get shut down from say ten thirty at night to six thirty in the morning. I and mean, you could each state could kind of figure out what you know time frame they want to do. But you know the idea here is you're kind of giving kids uh, freedom from having, you know, missing stuff out uh, that their friends are engaged in and, um, and you know, basically staying up late. Um, and we know that's a big predictor of depression and uh, doing poorly in school, not getting the requisite sleep, you know, for the night. So here we think the state could step in and, um, you know, basically um, protect kids from You know, from spending overnight time uh, logged on to you know a social media app, it's just going to make them miserable the next day.
0: I find I I imagine that the tech companies would would fight this tooth and nail. I mean, these kids are consumers; they're consuming product and and all the things that are being sold to them. I do you see any possibility of tech companies going along with any of these ideas uh, in the name of protecting children?
3: I think they're going to take half measures. I think they're going to, you know, they're going to offer more options for parents to kind of do stuff on their platforms. But again, if you're not really alerting parents to, you know, when your kids are on the, on the platform, then these sort of half measures are going to be pretty useless in many cases. So I think we need to think about big tech. Like we thought about big tobacco, you know, a couple of decades ago and big tobacco is was trying everything they could to kind of minimize you know regulatory oversight of their stuff mm-hmm. with, um, you know with, with teens and that's sort of where we're at today whereas you know big tech is trying to kind of you know offer a half measure here and there but really kind of not have anyone really come down hard on them and we need to recognize that just like big tobacco was a big health uh, threat to our kids well-being today big tech is a big threat to our kids emotional well-being um and so you know, our, our hope is that in, in five years from now, we're gonna kind of look back on this phase in American um, technological life and um, kind of appreciate fully how much big tech was a threat to our kids and how we've kind of taken the requisite steps to you know, put them uh, in their place and not give them, you know, um, an unfair advantage when it comes to accessing our kids' emotional and social uh, lives.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm Dr. Gracie Christie, and we're talking about the dangers of big tech for our teens and preteens with Brad Wilcox of the National Mar- Marriage Project. Now, Brad, one um, one of the ideas that you have in your in your study is to mandate full parental access to a minor social media account, especially the ages of 13 to 17. I love this idea because. It makes complete sense that that's something that the tech companies could do that we parents find very difficult. Even if there are work, there's ways that, for instance, you can control the iPhone account of your child. I've done that before, and I immediately forget how to do it, and then I can't get in. And it's it's, you know, and I'm not completely untech savvy, but it would be very easy for the tech companies to make the parents the primary account holder and then be able to oversee what their children are doing, how much time they're spending on the, on the site, and what exactly they're seeing.
3: Yeah, no, that's right. That's certainly one of the ideas that we propose. And again, there are, there are kind of, um, you know, there's certainly the technology there to kind of give parents that power, just they haven't made it have kind of an easy process for parents to, um, you know, to use, and, and they shouldn't be doing that today.
0: You have also another suggestion um, to create causes of action for parents, who can then seek legal remedies for some damage that has been done to their children. This is another way of holding tech companies accountable because we've seen, for instance, um, children that have been um, that have been trafficked right online, um, and and different hosting companies and websites who are allowing this to happen and possibly knowingly or very likely knowingly. So do you think that that's also a good possibility, that's something they could be held to account?
3: Yes, and I think the, the challenge here is to make sure that um, the basically the, the damages are large enough that they're going to basically get the attention of big tech. And so what we're hoping is that states would, you know, um, pass legislation that would include large images either on a you know per child basis or a per day basis that would um, you know force big tech to really kind of do a U turn here and become much more attentive to protecting kids from any kind of emotional or other kind of harm, like the one you just mentioned at the beginning of you know of this part of the segment.
0: Mm-hmm. Brad, um, this is a wonderful piece, and I recommend it to all our listeners. It's called um, "Protecting Teens from Big Tech." But you have uh, at the Institute for Family Studies. You do lots of uh, wonderful work. I follow, I follow. I personally follow your work there at the Institute, and I'd, I'd like to see what you guys are working on. What tell us about your, the Institute and what kinds of things that what kind of things you delve into?
3: Thanks, Gracie. Yeah, what we're doing at the Institute for Family Studies really is trying to figure out ways to strengthen and stabilize American family life. And we're particularly concerned with, um, basically trying to bridge the marriage uh, divide between Americans who are more educated and affluent, Americans who are you know, working class and poor. That's sort of one of our key concerns. We're also trying to basically give parents you know, greater power when it comes to addressing the challenges um, that big tech is uh, posing to, um, you know, to parents and teens today. And then we are also kind of tracking the really enormous um, collapse of the American fertility rate, but also kind of the like, really the like developed world's fertility rate. And thinking about, you know, what are you know policies and cultural steps we can take to make um, parenthood more appealing and more attainable for you know more American. Um young adults and middle aged adults who are, you know, thinking about having kids or having more kids.
0: You know, what I like what you do at at your at the uh, at the institute because you use real data and studies to to point out things that many of us know instinctively and we're watching it happen around us, but um but we don't we don't understand exactly the depth to which to which it's happening and also um, the way it's affecting more and more people, for instance, father, fatherlessness or the lack of um, people having children or putting off child, childbearing for, you know, f- for too long. <laughs> um, so I really appreciate that about about your institute and the way that you give us real numbers to work with.
3: Yeah, thanks. And I, th- I should just stress, too, I think that there is, you know, in the culture, there's a big stress to be kind of living a more individualistic a more me first lifestyle. And then when you kind of push beyond that uh, message you often get from the media, for instance, and talk about how kind of living more familistic and more we first, you know, my spouse, my kids, you know, as a big part of your your thinking and your living, um, what we find is that, you know, paradoxically, of course, people who are living, you know, for their spouse and for their families and for their kids are actually much more likely to be, not just of course stably married uh, today, but actually happier as well. And so, you know, the point that we're making at the Institute is just, you know, basically it's important to recognize, to realize that our, our pop culture and our elite culture are often telling you to live for yourself Mm-hmm. That's a, that's the pathway to to misery, not not to happiness.
0: Right, um, but you show this you show this not anecdotally or by you know writing puff pieces, but you show this with real numbers, with studies that show that people are dissatisfied and unhappy when their lives are are entirely individualistic.
3: Yes, that's that's correct.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Brad Wilcox, for joining us from the Institute for Family Studies, um, and thank you for. Um, pointing out the, these important things, uh, and especially our main topic here, which was um, the the dangers of big tech for uh, teens and preteens. So, thank you for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me on today, Gracie. Appreciate uh, the segment.
0: Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel.
4: This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, when the apostles approached Jesus to ask him for something. They didn't ask him for money. They didn't ask for fame. They didn't ask like Solomon for worldly wisdom and prudence. They didn't ask for health or a long life. They asked for something they had discovered was far more important than all of these things combined. They begged, increase our faith. Their petition for increased faith reveals their humble recognition that up until then, even though they were followers of Jesus, even though they were listening to his words, even though they had become, in fact, his friends, they were not living enough by faith and that they needed the Lord's help to grow. This Sunday, we're urged to make the same prayer to the Lord. Task for an increase in faith means to request three things, since faith means these three things. It means, first to grow in an obedient trust in God. We see this type of trust in Abraham, our father in faith, and in Mary, our mother in faith. When God asked 75-year-old Abraham to leave everything he had behind and journey to a faraway land, Abraham trusted in God and did so. He trusted in God when God promised that he and Sarah in their old age would finally conceive a son. He trusted in God even when God made him wait almost 25 years, even after he was 75, to fulfill that promise. trusted in God when 13 years later, God seemed to be asking him to sacrifice that son, Isaac, even though Isaac was the son God promised through whom he would make Abraham the father of many nations. Abraham trusted in the Lord so much that he would do anything God asked. Similarly, Mary trusted in God's words through the angel Gabriel, that she would conceive a child without the help of a man, and that that child would be the son of God. She trusted in God when Simeon prophesied that her son the Messiah would be a sign of contradiction rather than a triumphant king, that her own soul would be pierced. She trusted when she saw her son carry the wood of his sacrifice up the same mountain Isaac had ascended and no angel held back the hands of the Roman soldiers as they nailed that son to the cross. She trusted when she held her son's limp, bloody body in her arms. She trusted that God would bring great good, in fact our salvation, out of all of this evil. Likewise, for us to ask God to increase our faith is to ask him to increase our trust in him so that we might confidently obey him in everything, but especially in the most difficult times and circumstances. On Wednesday this week, October 5th, we will celebrate the feast of St. Faustina Kowalska, the Polish cloistered nun through whom Jesus revealed to us devotion to his divine mercy. Jesus had her paint an image of his blessing us with his mercy, at the bottom of which he instructed her to write, Jesus, I trust in you. The first way we're called to grow in faith is through trusting in God, trusting in his ways, trusting in how all things, even suffering, death or crucifixion, work out for the good for those who love him. When we pray, Lord, increase our faith, God responds by infusing within us this gift, but he also puts us in tests and circumstances like he did with Abraham and Mary, in which we're able to grow that moral muscle. Whenever we entrust ourselves to God in such circumstances, we do grow in faith. The second meaning of faith is the content of what we believe on the basis of our trust in God who reveals those truths. This meaning refers to the various truths of our faith found in the creed we profess each Sunday in the Catechism of the Catholic Church and embedded throughout the Church's prayer. To appeal to the Lord to increase our faith means to ask him to give us greater knowledge and understanding of the truths of the faith he reveals. The Lord wants to augment our assimilation of the doctrine of the faith to help us cooperate with the Holy Spirit as he seeks to guide us to all truth. But in general, God won't do so without our effort. To pray for increased faith implies a willingness to make that effort in response to his help. To get to know our faith better by praying sacred scripture, by studying the catechism, by reading what the popes and bishops write to us, by attending adult education classes, by taking advantage of the incredible materials now available in books, podcasts, videos online from programs like Word on Fire or Formed or Dynamic Catholic or Ascension Press or so many solid Catholic publishing houses. To ask God to increase our faith without a willingness to put our effort into learning and understanding the content of our faith would be like a seventh grader's asking God to help him get a hundred on a test without wanting to study. It's only in such a process of growing in faith through working with the light of the Holy Spirit to understand it better that the Lord makes us ever more persons of faith. The third meaning of increased faith is greater lived faith, what St. Paul would call faith working through love. St. James reminds us in his letter that faith without works is dead, and if we have true faith, it will impact, and impact in a big way, how we think, how we speak, how we behave. A few years ago, Pope Francis made Archbishop Sigitas Tamkevicius of Lithuania cardinal. He had spent over a decade in a Soviet labor camp because he was a Catholic priest who courageously defended human rights. He survived those years through faithful prayer and Mass, secretly absconding bread and grapes from the kitchen to make the elements needed for Mass. He was asked by a reporter right before he was made a Cardinal about the brutal suffering he endured, but he didn't want to get into his scars. He wanted to focus on something he considered more important. Cardinal Tomkiewicz responded matter-of-factly, if a believer isn't ready to suffer for his faith, then he's not much of a believer. This is the faith of the martyrs. This is the faith of the saints. To be a believer is to commit to what we believe. We believe in the Word of God and therefore we treasure it and read it. We believe in the sacrament of baptism and bring our children at the earliest instant. We believe in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist and so come to Mass because we recognize that there can be nothing greater than being in the presence of God and receiving Him within. We believe in the need for the forgiveness of sins, and so we humbly come to confession to receive the mercy Jesus sent the apostles out on Easter Sunday to bestow in his name. We believe in the commandments, the beatitudes, the corporal and spiritual works of mercy. We believe in the original differentiation between man and woman as part of the image of God. We believe in simple right and wrong. On this Respect Life Sunday, we believe in the dignity of every human life and that whatever we do to the unborn and to their moms, whatever we do to the least of our brothers and sisters, we do to Jesus. We seek in short with God's help to live by the faith and the morals that flow from faith. To ask God to increase our faith is to desire with God's help to grow in steadfast practice of the faith, even and especially when it's hard, because as the Cardinal says, if a believer isn't ready to suffer for his faith, he's not much of a believer. This Sunday, as we echo the Apostles' prayer for increased faith, God wants to help us grow in trust in him, in the knowledge and understanding about the truths of our faith, and are putting our faith into action. Jesus says that if we have the faith of a mustard seed, we can transplant forests into seas. To give us that increase in faith, he gives us himself on the inside in the Holy Eucharist the end of this Sunday's gospel he says that the faithful servant is one who after doing all that he's been commanded after plowing or tending the sheep enters the house puts on an apron and continues to serve well as we prepare to do what Jesus commanded to do this in memory of him we remember that Jesus at the last supper didn't allow the apostles to do that Instead, he girded himself with an apron and washed their feet and promised elsewhere that if he finds his servants vigilant and faithful, he'll gird himself, have them recline at table, and proceed to wait on them. This is what happens at the Holy Eucharist. Even though we come to serve and praise God, he serves us. The Lord wants to grant us the increase in faith we need, and to prove it, he gives us himself. As we prepare to give ourselves to God, he gives himself to us. Sometimes people have more faith in the power of two Advil to relieve a headache than they do in the power of receiving Jesus in the Eucharist to make us holy. But if we receive him with the faith he wants to give us, he can, through Holy Communion, increase our faith so much that it will be like the faith of the saints and the martyrs. From the inside, Jesus can and wants to help us live for our faith, love our faith, give witness to our faith, and if God wills it, courageously suffer for our faith and die for him who suffered and died out of love for us. This is our faith. This is the faith of the church. How proud we are to profess it in Christ Jesus our Lord and how earnestly we beseech it this Sunday. God bless you all.